A sample of the human voice is a rich piece of unstructured data. Voice recordings can be turned into visualizations called spectrograms. Machine learning models can be trained to identify features of these spectrograms. Using this kind of analytic strategy, breakthroughs in voice analysis are happening at an amazing pace. Much like image recognition and product recommendations through collaborative filtering, breakthroughs in voice technology are really astounding, applying fairly basic machine learning tools. Rita Singh researches voice at Carnegie Mellon University. Rita's work studies the high volume of latent data that is available in the human voice. As she explains, just a small fragment of a human voice can be used to identify who a speaker is. Your voice is as distinctive as your fingerprint. Rita is really excited about her work, and in this episode, you will see why. Some of this stuff is just mind-blowing. Your voice can reveal explanations about your medical conditions. Features of the human voice can be strongly correlated with psychiatric symptom severity, and potentially things like heart disease, cancer, other illnesses. The human voice can even suggest a person's physique, your height, your weight, your facial features. And if you think about it, this kind of makes sense because there are so many muscles that go into the production of the human voice, and bones contribute to the musculature of those muscles that are contributing to the human voice. So it makes sense that there is a very distinctive model of your physique that leads to your voice. And it would be unsurprising if things like the level of dampness in your throat, which could be correlated with a cancer or some other illness, maybe that could affect your voice in a specific way and could give a strong indication of you having a certain illness just by getting a recording of your voice and being able to derive the amount of dampness in your throat from that vocal recording. In this episode, Rita explains the machine learning techniques that she's using to uncover the hidden richness of the human voice. It was a real pleasure talking to Rita, and it's just always great to hear somebody who is as enthusiastic about her work as she is, and you will find out in this episode why she is so enthusiastic, because some of this science is really incredible. Rita Singh is a research scientist who studies voice processing. Rita, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Your work centers around how to process the human voice and how to derive signal from it. There are important problems around this, like identifying fake bomb threats. If somebody calls in a fake bomb threat, you would like to be able to identify that the person is lying on the phone. You could also use voice processing to deduce if somebody is depressed from their voice. Yeah. And you also study voice impersonation, which is the idea of taking a set of voice signals and then using that to generate a impersonation of somebody else. Why do you focus on this specific field of computer science, the human voice? Okay, so let me give you a little bit of history here. So I've been working on uh, computer speech recognition and audio processing for about 20 years. And in those 20 years, I've been working, I've been looking at search algorithms and um, all what have you 
to do with automatic uh, speech processing systems. And I, in that period, in that process, studied the human voice very closely. All of us do who are in this field, right? But I never really thought of looking at what the voice signal from the perspective of deriving information about the speaker, or I call it profiling speakers from the human voice. I did not think about doing that until I was challenged by the U.S. Coast Guard with a real crime that involved a hoax caller who kept calling them over a period of five or six months. These hoax calls are really problematic for the Coast Guard because they have to fire up search and rescue missions, which are very expensive and dangerous at times. So, And the hoax calls that they get are usually mayday calls which are very, very short in duration. They are made over the VHF-16 radio channel, and so they are very noisy as well. And for the most part, with from these short recordings, it's nearly impossible to get a clue as to who the person is at the time. They can kind of locate the person to a very large geographical area, about, you know, we're talking hundreds of square miles, and they go out searching for these people. And if they don't find them, it's a, it's a loss in many ways. So anyway, they get a lot of these hoax calls. When this guy started bothering them, this was in 2014, they sent the recordings to a few centers around to find out more about the speaker. The challenge was, can, could you tell us more about this person? This is the only clue we have of the person. So the voice recordings totaled about 10 seconds over a few calls, or made over five or six months. And so when these calls landed up at my desk, that is when I started looking at the voice signal from the perspective of finding out more about the speaker. And I discovered that in these 20 years that I had been studying the human voice, I could actually derive a lot of information from the signal. And this is because we as a community have been, and I'm speaking of the scientific community, have been curious about the human voice since the dawn of time, I think. Humans have been curious about the human voice since the dawn of time. And so there have been lots and lots of uh, scientific studies about the human voice. There are more than 30 fields that have studied the human voice. And we are talking architectural acoustics, drama, medical fields, so on and so forth, psychoacoustics, even developmental psychology, things like that. There are more than 400 scientific journals that have published and continue to publish results on the human voice. And so there's so much information out there that correlates the human voice to one thing or the other, to the environment around us, to the speaker's parameters, many, many things about us, our physical, physiological, behavioral, medical, demographic, lots of different categories of speaker parameters. So with all that information out there, all you have to do is connect the dots. And I did when the case came to my desk. I did what I could very quickly and manually for the most part. And I could give them about 14, 15, 16 different pieces of information, which later turned out to be quite accurate when the person was caught. And so that was when in that process, I realized that A, there is a lot of value in now looking at the speech signal from this perspective of deriving more information about the speaker. B, suddenly I realized 
that the speech signal is a treasure trove of information about you. It's like your fingerprint or DNA, in a sense. It has so much information. And we don't have, I mean, we are in the age of AI. We have powerful techniques to process these signals, but we really haven't developed profiling as a science. So we don't have the algorithms and and the know-how and the pipelines that we need to get this kind of information from the speech signal. So there was a science. In my uh, limited worldview, I would say there was a science waiting to be developed. And I'm curious. I, I was very interested. And so I dropped computer speech recognition right there and called it uh, a solved problem. And it, it, it is now a solved problem with Google and Amazon coming up with such good devices for speech recognition. And I moved into this field. And ever since then, I have been trying to develop this field of what I call human profiling or profiling humans from their voice as a science. I love how enthusiastic and excited you are about this field. You can really tell from, <laughs> I can tell from your voice how excited you are about this. There you this go. Bur- if you look at the spectrogram <laughs> of my voice as I'm talking now, you sense enthusiasm in me, right? I am enthusiastic. I agree. Yeah. However, yeah. if, I, if you see my spectrogram, you're not going to be able to point to one thing and say, hey, that is the signature of enthusiasm. <laughs> but, you know, you and I both agree that the signature is there, right? Yeah. Where is it? How do you discover? Well, we know that there is some neural network architecture that we could make to identify that enthusiasm. <laughs> Not neural networks again. They're not the panacea. They're not the answer to everything. They're very powerful mechanisms, but they're not the answer to everything and certainly not the answer to profiling humans from their voice. Way too many challenges. Let's jump into it. We've got, let's say we have a spectrogram or we have a collection of spectrograms. We want to identify enthusiasm uh-huh. <laughs> without using neural nets. <laughs> okay, what are we let's doing? try to solve that problem. Okay. A, let's you and I both agree that a spectrogram is one of the many, many, many different transformations of the speech signal that you can... M- maybe you could just define for people who aren't familiar what a spectrogram is. Oh, a spectrogram is basically a breakdown of the frequency content of an audio signal against time. So you can think of it as an image. And so think of it as a plane uh, with the x-axis being the time and the y-axis the frequency. And you will see many patterns on it. And these patterns are, if you think of it as an image on your screen, the color of any pixel at any point is the energy in that frequency at that time. I don't know if, if that explains it well enough. No, no, that's a good explanation. Okay. Now, now let's take that data set and, and solve for enthusiasm. Okay, for enthusiasm. Okay, so where would we? Okay, so you and I both agree that the spectrogram is only one of the many, many, many different possible representations of the speech signal, right? Now, if these representations, like the spectrogram um, is a 2D representation or a 3D representation, however you want to see it, it's human viewable and human interpretable. And you and I are trying to look for signatures of enthusiasm in this human viewable and human interpretable representation, right? We may not find it. However, you and I both agree that the signature is there. 
right? So, mm-hmm. let me begin with the hypothesis. That there are two ways in which I go. I can go about this, okay? And I'll talk about the second way after I finish with the first one. So, let me begin. The first one is I begin with the hypothesis that there exists the signature of enthusiasm. It, it is there in the voice and I need to discover it. How do I discover it? Okay. Let's say I know that the signature is there. It's I assume that it's in some high dimensional space for very many reasons, high dimensional mathematical space. So I design some mechanism. Let's talk about neural networks. Maybe I design a neural network mechanism wherein I can transform the speed signal into some high dimensional latent mathematical space, right? Where I expect to find the signature of enthusiasm. Now, how will I find the signature of enthusiasm in that space? Just wishing that there is such a space and I can transform it is not enough. I actually have to design the entire architecture to bring out that information, right? So there are very many other assumptions then I, w- I would have to make and impose in this latent space. I would have to say, hey, you know, I mean, I can't arbitrarily have very high dimensions. I want the signatures to be in that space, but confined to some low dimensional manifold, a subspace of that space. Okay, I can impose that condition on that space. Then I can impose other factors, other conditions that allow me to constrain the solution to the problem within that space in a manner that I can then discover it. Right. So I can say, okay, I want to find these representations, but I want them to have such and such a distribution because I feel that, I mean, it's not entirely intuition here. I know a little bit about speech that they should have such a distribution. They should be confined to within this space with this distribution. At the same time, I want these features to reflect the quality of enthusiasm as best as possible. Now, I have a mechanism and I have a way of designing a an entire neural network architecture to impose these conditions and discover these kind of, or engineer these kind of latent features in that space. And so that part, so once I have those representations, I can then use standard uh, machine learning algorithms to map those representations to speech that exhibits enthusiasm versus speech that does not exhibit enthusiasm. It's a standard classifier training paradigm that we then get into after discovery of these features. So just to make sure I understand this so far, yeah. let's say we need, first of all, we do need a labeled data set for this mechanism. That we you, do need a labeled data set for this mechanism to work, yes. So maybe, maybe we get a thousand podcast guest recording. So the guests that have come on my show, yeah. we have let's say we have a thousand guests and we label them as either enthusiastic about their work mm-hmm. or not enthusiastic <laughs> about their okay. work. So we've got labeled enthusiasm and non-enthusiasm recordings of these guests. Uh-huh. And then we process these r- recordings into a spectrogram yes. and then we use a neural net and, and not just uh, not spectrogram. I could start with something else. I could start with the a, a 3D uh, video representation of speech. I could start with one of very many standard representations of speech, right? Okay, so that was just a correction, but spectrogram is just as good, right? Right, so any high-dimensional 
set of data, high dimensional meaning un- like large unstructured set of data where there's there's not like you can look at that data set in from a lot of different angles. I think that's one way of defining that term unstructured yeah, yeah. data. So that you and I are on the same page. We are talking about feature discovery. Mm-hmm. Right? right, feature engineering and feature discovery. That's a vital part of this. And I didn't talk about the second mechanism, but we'll get to it. Yes, absolutely. But so, so still talking about, so you use the feature discovery yeah. to find the features that are correlated. To custom design the features that are cor- Custom design the features. And these are not features like we would be able to articulate as humans. They are just mathematical features yes. that, are cor- that happen to be correlated with the enthusiastic recordings and perhaps anti-correlated. You are correlated to the enthusiastic recordings in the process. And you can use some fairly well-defined methods for doing that. Like I think random forest would be a good approach for fe- that feature discovery, right? Not for the feature discovery, but yes, it would be a good approach for applying to the mapping, the modeling stage. Once you've discovered the features, you have to come up with predictors and classifiers, right? For the parameter you're looking uh. for. So they, they would be all of these standard machine learning classifiers, predictors, regressors, uh, what have you, all of these are very well well suited for that stage. Right. Right. Okay. A lot of the technology that we need is it's already there. A lot of the know-how is spread over that many fields that have studied the human voice. And all I'm sitting here and doing is I'm not claiming I'm the first person to have thought of this or anything. I'm just sitting here connecting the dots. It's such a fantastic voyage of discovery. It's you, I discover more and more and more about the human voice, and it's amazing. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper on this example, yeah. and then we'll move on. We're, we're spending a lot of time on this first example, but it's I think it's a great example. So let's say we've discovered the features, and now we want to figure out how to use these defined features to process this data set and identify which of these people are enthusiastic. What What's the next phase? Standard machine learning. The next phase is just standard machine learning. Enthusiastic, not enthusiastic. You can throw a random forest classifier. You can throw a support vector machine, a binary. If you have a binary classification problem, these two will work. If you have a multi-class classification problem, if you're grading a psychiatric symptom or something like that, you, you use different classifiers and regressors, whatever is suitable for the parameter that you're, that you're trying to predict. What are the standard tools you would use for that feature discovery part? So we're engineering the tools. We're, so, and most of these are based on uh, neural networks, but they're not already there. So you have, yes, we use some elements of generative adversarial networks, some elements of, you know, LSTMs, RNNs, and it's an engineering process. We take pieces of different kinds of neural networks, different paradigms within those as and when required, engineer the systems and do the best we can to discover these features. And these features are what I call micro features. These are often uh, these signatures are embedded in about 120th or 140th of a second duration in speech. And many of these actually are, you and I can actually relate to them from standard literature. I don't know if you know about voicing onset time. Have you uh, have you read about that? I haven't heard that term. Oh, okay. So do you want me to explain that? It's very interesting. Sure. Okay. So let's say I, you or I say a word like cat. Now, as I say cat, I have uttered 
three different sounds, k and a and t. And in order to utter these three different sounds, and in order for you to hear them, you know, you heard them in a rapid succession and you heard the entire word, but you also heard the sounds, right? How did I produce these sounds? I produced the sounds by, by moving my, the articulators in my vocal tract, right? And when the articulators move, the dimensions of the vocal chambers change and the resonances change. And so the quality of the sound changes and you hear different sounds, right? So that's how I produce these sounds. There are many categories of sounds that we produce as we speak continuously. We produce vowels and consonants and different kinds of consonants, different kinds of vowels, right? So when I said cat, the first k is a stop consonant. What would that, from articulatory phonetics, you would say that that particular sound, k, does not require your vocal folds to vibrate. There is no excitation signal in the vocal tract to produce that sound. The way you produce that sound is by creating an obstruction in your vocal tract, building up the air pressure behind that obstruction, and suddenly releasing it, right? Now, the very next sound is a. Ah. And when you say a, ah, if you keep your fingers on your Adam's apple, you'll feel the vibrations, right? In order to utter the sound a, ah, your vocal folds have to vibrate at full potential. Now, when I say cat, I'm taking my vocal folds from a state of complete rest, from k to a ah, in a very short time. It's like, you know, accelerating a car from zero to 60 miles per hour. And that time is different for different cars. The more higher end your car is, the shorter the time and so on and so forth, right? So our vocal tract, our speech production apparatus has a certain inertia and it takes a micro duration of time to go from a state of, for the vocal folds to go from a, from a state of complete rest to a state of full motion right? And that time, that short time is called the voicing onset time. And it's different for different people. It's not only different for different people because their vocal tract inertia is different because the vocal tract is a very complicated physical, I don't have the right word for it, apparatus for, 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 for want of a better word. So it, it's quite complicated in its structure, uh, musculature and everything. Your point here is that this is an extremely high signal component of yes. human speech. So it is something that is so individual to you that it is, it's not only different for different people, it's different for different combinations of sounds that you produce. So if you were able to actually measure this micro feature accurately, and there have been groups around the world, especially my, my colleague Yossi Keshet in Bar Ilan University in Israel has done a lot of work in accurately measuring voicing onset time. If you were able to do that, you could come up with a, a set of voicing onset times for you, for Jeffrey. That would be like, uh, I don't want to go into hyperbole here, but something equivalent to a barcode for you. How big of a sample do you need to develop that fingerprint? I could measure it manually on the spectrogram. So I just need one sample. From you? Like how long of me speaking? Like just a so, minute? Yeah, well, no, one word, cat. You say cat, I can measure your voicing on. Oh my God. <laughs> time. If you say other words that have different combinations of stops and voiced sounds, I could measure the voicing onset time for different combinations of sounds that you produce. And I can put all of these together. And, and because you have no control over them, it doesn't matter how hard you try to disguise your voice, I might be able to actually identify you from just this 
set of features. And this, by the way, is not even one of the discovered features that I've been talking about. This is a standard feature that has been studied in the past in other fields. There have been lots of papers written about it, very good algorithms devised to measure it, and so on and so forth. And there are many, many, many such little features about the human voice that could be put together and used to profile you. Hmm. The different applications of this, you wrote this paper about deducing the severity of psychiatric symptoms from the human voice. I thought this was a perfect example of how this can be applied. So this is the idea that you can grade the severity of psychiatric symptoms from somebody's voice on the phone. So if you already know somebody is schizophrenic, for example, or has some degree of schizophrenia, schizophrenia is like, I think is on graded on some kind of severity scale. If you just take a sample of their voice, you can grade the severity of their symptoms Or if you assume that they're schizophrenic, then you would, if you were trying to develop some system for somebody calling into 911 and grading their severity of, like, schizophrenia or bipolar or... I could start by just trying to... I mean, this is... I cannot already do this, so take this with a pinch of salt, but I want to be able to do this. Hypothetically, anything that affects your voice and and all of these symptoms of these um, conditions that you're talking about do affect a person's voice. And there's literature out there saying that could be identified or differentiated from voice alone. So if you call in and I don't know that you have schizophrenia or that you're depressed or whatever, I, you know, a few years down the line, hope to have an, an automated system that might be able to first understand that you have such and such a condition or or such and such a set of conditions and then go ahead and try to grade the severity of that condition. It's important in the, the current crime cases that I look at often uh, have voices that sound intoxicated. And I would very much like to be able to tell whether the person is intoxicated with uh, alcohol or cocaine or heroin or whatever. I would be, I would like to be able to differentiate between the intoxicant from the voice and it's doable. It's doable because in, at least in law enforcement cases, it gives the detectives some clue as to what places to look for the, for the perpetrators uh, in or, uh, yeah. And the degree of erratic behavior to expect. I mean, if, if you're talking about somebody that's on coke versus somebody that's just drunk a little bit, there are very different extremes of the behavior that you can expect. Very different extremes of the behavior, yes. So it's all now, today, uh, as I sit here and talk to you, Jeffrey, it's all doable. It's all a function of data. And one way of of looking at this from your paper is the fact that human speech takes into account so many different physical elements. You've got teeth, lips, tongue, uvula, which is the the thing that dangles down in the back of your throat, your pharynx. And all of these, these are physical components. And just like your heartbeat, your other elements of your physique are influenced in distinctive ways by alcohol or cocaine. Oh, you were... Yes, they are. And it, just your vocal folds are, held, are moved by six, six different muscles. Those little 
<laughs> workflows are controlled by six different muscles. Anything that affects your brain, your neurotransmitters, your your, your physiology, all of these have some influence in some way on on some part of your vocal tract. And then we are talking about so many different parameters within the vocal tract. So we're talking about, you know, everything, starting from skeletal proportions, your tissue elasticity, muscular thickness, moisture levels, the shape of your lip, nose, neck, uh, the length of your vocal folds, your density of the cartilages inside your what are called laryngeal cartilages, even your lung volume, your trachea diameter, your lung capacity, you name it. There are so many, many different factors that influence your voice that if you put all of these together, it's, it's impossible for any of these things not to have an influence on your voice. Right. So let's let's take this a step further. I did a show recently with somebody from the TensorFlow team and they were taught you probably saw this result. There was this result that came out of uh, I think that this Google project where they're looking at a lot of pictures of of eyeballs basically to di- to diagnose diabetic retinopathy. Have you seen the, this this class of research? Um no, I'm afraid not. No, I haven't. Well, come basically that one. they have this big set of data of just close-up scans of human eyeballs and they're using this to diagnose diabetic retinopathy. So you can you can actually you yeah, you can and you can actually get to the degree of an ophthalmologist or opto- uh-huh. I think ophthalmologist. Yeah, um by you know just a, a well-trained neural net but the other thing that they discussed uh, they the other thing they were able to predict was actually i think it was heart conditions they were able to predict heart conditions and things like i think they were able to predict age and gender based off of just looking at a human's eyeball which is kind of a- fantastic yes it's i mean it's totally believable it's uh, yeah i mean so yes. the, but the idea here if you extrapolate this is basically aspects of humans humans have so many mm-hmm. different moving parts within them and so many different distinctive lower level components that you can really derive yeah. a lot of information from these high signal imaging uh, imaging pieces of human data whether yes. you're talking about an eyeball or a human's voice so what i want to ask you i think with the with the technology we have now and with the, with google's results and with what i have been looking at I firmly believe that we are at a stage where we're only just scratching the surface of the the amount of information that can be gleaned from all kinds of signals that humans generate. So you could imagine I'm download some app onto my phone and it processes everything that I say. I mean, let's ignore the privacy implications for a moment, uh-huh. but it, it hears everything I say it might be able to predict if I'm going to have a stroke or if I'm going to have a heart attack in the near future or if I'm going to have cancer. Th- these things are actually fathomable. Would you Would you agree? Yes, I agree. Conceivable, fathomable, doable, and coming up. It's inevitable. These things are going to come up in the next few years. Incredible. So... What are you working on right now? Like as we, you know, volley towards this future, what are the the problems that you're trying to solve that will get us closer to those kinds of solutions? So my entire group here at Carnegie Mellon is working towards one goal, and that's my dream. And that goal is to be able to recreate the human persona in 3D from voice alone. So we have been able to generate the human face. Back in December, we got our first uh, results on that. And 
the results are not perfect, of course, but we are getting there. And yes, so the human form is one of the thing, things. I am uh, working towards, as I said, developing the science of microarticulometry and profiling. I would like to be able to get get as much information about the human body and the human mind and the human persona as is possible to get from the human voice. Uh, I want to be able to design uh, the right algorithms in order for us to do that. Uh, I, you know, if I'm successful down the line, I don't know how many years it will take. I think we're looking at a future and not just me, of course, all my very capable colleagues as well around the world. We can accelerate this and we will be looking at a world where you could, machines could understand humans better than humans can conceivably because machines might be able to glean more information from your voice than you can. Your hearing is, our hearing is not so perfect. Our hearing has evolved to a point where it just serves us to survive in this world. So we, 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 are, we are looking at a future where machines might be able to understand us better than we can. Ourselves may be able to help uh, doctors diagnose uh, diseases much before actual severe physical symptoms show up, uh, which would be very useful for most of the world that is still struggling for um, medical facilities. Right. I mean, this is the same kind of like the environment where this diabetic retinopathy technology was deployed was, I think, in in a place yeah. where most people who might have diabetic retinopathy can't afford to go to an ophthalmologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many other other uses that one can think of, who knows, you know, people could think of many different uses for the information that you can get from voice. So, so to be clear, your goal, your moonshot goal of you and your team is to be able to take a sample of a human voice and recreate the physical visage of that person. Among other things, yes. What would be some other things? Well, the other things is, are, you know, getting uh, accurate information about their uh, physical health status, mental health status, their hmm. environment, social background. Your environment also influences your voice. And it's a very, very long shot. But at some point, I hope we'll, we'll get to a stage where we might be able to recreate some part of the physical environment around you from your voice. So, like, if you're in a room, maybe gauge the dimensions of the room, you know, what the ceiling is made of, what the walls are made of, what's around you that's reflecting sound and things like that. Very long shot. I mean, I, I, I know, <laughs> don't scoff at this, but this is the future I'm, I'm working to it. Yeah, so more information about the person and persona from the voice. Hmm. And the steps to getting there, what are the projects that you're focused on specifically right now to get to that future? Okay, so my biggest source of funding is from the law enforcement government. And so in the context of law enforcement, I have to deal with particular nuance of the human <laughs> human voice and human personality, which is the fact that we as a race are pretty devious. <laughs> and when we commit crimes with our voice as the sole tool for that crime, we often try to disguise our voices. Even though in most of the cases of hoax calls, especially that I've studied, even though these hoax callers are not very technically savvy and have no idea 
how potent their voice is in giving away their identity, they instinctively try to not sound like themselves. They're making a hoax call. They want the emergency, the rescue services to respond. So they have to sound like a real person, but they still try to disguise their voice in a way that they don't sound like themselves. And this comes instinctively to us. So now the big question is, I want to derive all this information, but I have no idea what the extent of, I mean, how much humans can actually vary their voice. There has been no systematic study about this. What is the extent to which you can vary your voice? How much can you disguise your voice? And if you do disguise your voice, what is it that is within your voluntary control? And what is it that is not in your voluntary control? Can I use what is not in your voluntary control to profile you then? So I have to discover all of that, right? And and there are so many, many fundamental questions that remain to be answered in, in this context. What happens to your voice when you scream, when you whisper? What changes? What aspects change? You know, I mean, what can I home in to accurately profile you? What must I discard? Right. So if you had a data set of one person saying Mm -hmm. 20 different things while they're whispering, and then they say the same 20 different things in their normal voice, you might be able to derive which features remain constant between those two sets of data and use that in, signal. Under those conditions, I'm, you know, whispering is not the only way this person can change their voice. They can disguise their voice by changing the style. Now, what is style? There's, you know, it's such a fuzzy concept. What is style? Can you measure it? If you can't measure it, well, I have to find a way to measure it. You know, if, if I want to study, if I want to automate anything, I have to measure those things, right? Right. This, this is another thing you, you talked about in, in one of your papers, your voice impersonation paper, yeah. where you talked about style tra- like the, the style transfer stuff that came out of I think I mean it came out of the maybe did it come out of the deep mind uh, not the deep mind so so this was all that paper I know which one you're referring to have been looking at uh, style transfer in order to discover the elements of style automatically in a manner that they could be measured right so if you took a set of van gogh paintings and mm-hmm. applied style transfer to derive what is the style of van gogh like you can't articulate what is the style of van gogh but a machine can present several mathematical properties of van gogh paintings and then apply those mathematical properties to other images in order to get this style transfer of images where you will if you apply the van gogh style transfer transform you've articulated this very very well that's exactly yes. what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So if you so if you take this just to drive it home a little bit further. So if you take this Van Gogh transform and apply it to a random picture of a cloud right. or a cat, suddenly that cloud or a cat will look like a Van Gogh painting. You'll say, "Oh, it's Van Gogh." Again, I don't know how to describe it, but that is a Van Gogh picture of a cloud or a cat. That is a Van Gogh. I don't know how to describe it. And I, I look at all the. I mean, I mean, I'm just I'm moving the topic a little bit uh, sideways. If you Take up all the papers that have studied the correlation of human voice to one thing or the other and one thing or the other relating to human parameters. You will find that people are often talking about, quote unquote, voice quality. The voice quality is related to this. Voice quality is related to that. But what is voice quality? If you look deeper into it, voice quality is made up of 23 or 24 different sub-qualities, and they have very subjective names like breathiness, raspiness, 
hardness, nasality. How do you measure these? If you show me a spectrogram and if, if I say Jeffrey's voice is breathier than mine, if I look at, if I compare the two spectrograms, I don't think I can point out to one thing and say, hey, that is breathiness. And I can measure that. So how do I find, how do I measure breathiness? I have to figure out a way to do that. We figure out a way to do that, right? So we, we do that using proxy features, but, but I'm not going to go into that. But the idea with proxy features, just uh, skimming the surface, is to come up with, is to, if you can't measure something, find something else that is highly correlated with that and is measurable and measure that other thing. And then that those proxy features abstract into something that averages to the higher level feature you're looking for. Now, now let me get back to I deviated from your Van Gogh and you were you were <laughs> I wrote poetry about it some time back. But very good example that you picked up. So, now if I were to try to discover style or try to quantify style, I could do that in two different ways. One is I might want to go bottom up where I study many different instances of disguised voices and figure out what the specific patterns are that I could call style and how they could be measured. And which is, This has been the traditional way of describing style, prosody, this, that, whatever, you know, our things that are measurable, entities that are measurable. But now we have the AI and revolution and neural network revolution going on and everybody's throwing data at neural networks. So you can actually afford to go go top down. You can you can take a neural network, you can devise a neural network to transform one kind of style or one kind of voice to another kind of voice. My voice to your voice right? And once I'm able to do that, then I take the neural network and I dissect it. I try to find out from its internal representations what might be the element of style or, or elements of style that it might have captured in the process of doing that, trans learning to do that transformation, right? So that's another way of discovering style. Now, we all understand that style that is discovered in this manner might not be it might not be something that you and I can readily name or relate to or you know but we can still identify it and we can still measure it and we can in fact measure it more than we could measure the the bottom up features that we were trying to come up over the past decades in relation to, to style so so we suddenly have all these tools and mechanisms at our disposal that allow us to do top-down discovery. That's very valuable, I think. One thing you touched on earlier was generative adversarial networks, GANs. And these are a tool that you used in your voice impersonation technology, the, the voice impersonation paper. And explaining GANs in detail is probably not something that's like scoped to a podcast or well, you know, something that you wanted to discuss over a podcast, <laughs> but maybe you could ex explain the problem domain that GANs is useful for. Why have I been hearing so much about generative adversarial networks? I will try to explain it in one way and I'm sure that's not going to work and then I'm going to come back to this traditional explanation. So I'll try the first way. So you are an intelligence agent and you're trying to devise a strategy to beat your enemy at something or you're playing a game against an adversary and you're trying to devise an automated strategy to beat that other person's moves 
uh, or typical moves of that player in that game. The strategy that you devise would have to take into account the skills of your adversary. And you and I think you will agree with me that if you start off by assuming that your adversary is as smart as you are, if not smarter, your strategy eventually will turn out to be much better and more effective at defeating your adversary. Without taking the adversary into account, any strategy that you come up with based just on rules may not be as effective. So if you have any situation where you are trying to devise something that you want to engineer to do something very important for you, you have to bring it into a situation where you allow it to, quote unquote, do its best to confound you at your, in your quest. And then you try to devise the strategy to beat it. I don't think I did a good job there. Okay, let's bring it down to the worst case. <laughs> The adversarial networks, that's the idea. Any strategy that you design, adversarial networks are generally used to design strategies in many different contexts. And you may not want to call them strategies or whatever, but algorithms in many different contexts. They allow you to take both sides of the coin into account and play them against each other so that the end result, which is the algorithm or the the engineered result of the strategy is much better than it would have otherwise been. Now, in the voice context, I talked about feature discovery and I talked about, you know, imposing certain, uh, certain distributions in the latent space. Let's just take that one little example. Okay, I want to discover a feature in the latent space, space that not only captures all the information you have in your voice, but also imposes a certain distribution on it, okay? Just this little, I just want that. Now, if I did not want to impose a distribution on it, and I all I wanted to do was to make sure the my feature in the Latin space did capture every bit of information that was in your voice, how would I do that? Just that part I could do by simply testing the feature in the Latin space by decoding it or reconstructing your speech from it and making sure that the difference between your original speech speech and the reconstructed speech is minimal. I could come up with a situation where I can define a loss function to minimize the difference. And then at the end, when it's properly trained and if it's a neural network setup, I could say that, yes, the feature if I see that feature, the, the speech that I reconstruct from the latent variable is very, very close to, if not indistinguishable from your original speech, the feature does capture all the information that is there in your speech. Now I want to impose a distribution on it. I want it to not only capture all the information, I want it to look like Mickey Mouse or something like that. Okay, how do I do that? So now this is where I put it, it, put this whole setup in an adversarial situation. I am going to come up with a module that comes up with another feature, let's say a, a parallel feature that has that distribution, okay? It just doesn't have the information that you have, but it does have that information. Think of a random variable that I'm shaping to some distribution through some mechanism. Now what I want to do 
is I want to make sure that one way of making sure that my latent variable has the same distribution is to make sure that the difference between the distributions of these two features that I have now is minimum. So now what I can do is I can make my encoder something that the encoder is the part that takes your voice and brings it into that latent space, right? I can make it such or engineer it such that the difference between the latent feature that I come up with and my other feature that has the distribution I want is minimized. At the same time, I can have a discriminator or some other module sitting there and trying to all the time distinguish as best as possible between the two feature sets. One of the, so this latter thing that I talked about, the discriminator is trying to maximally differentiate between the two features I have, while my encoder is trying to confuse the discriminator, like bring the two as close as possible. Now I have an adversarial situation and, I, and, and you can see that if I train this setup well, at the end of the day, I am going to impose the exact distribution I want to impose in the latent space on the feature that I want to engineer. And I'm going to be able to do it very well because I have put the whole setup in an adversarial situation, right? So feature engineering, this is one example of framing a situation as an adversarial situation and being able to use generative adversarial networks to asymptote towards yeah, feature engineering is one example that I gave. Right. There are many other situations. What would yeah. be a few other applications of GANs? People are using them everywhere. In mapping uh, one entity to another, When I can't think of anything specific, but it's everywhere. One of the very, very, very important arenas where GANs are being used are in generating adversarial, like generating adversarial attacks on existing AI systems. So think of a face recognition system, for example, a face identification system that's deployed on the border, takes a photograph of a face and identifies who the person is. If the person is not found, if it's a new person, puts that person in the database so that the next time the person can be identified, right? You've, you've seen face recognition systems at work. Now it turns out there are, there are a lot of, there are many papers now on how you can actually fool these face recognition systems in many different ways, with or without, even if you don't have access to the insides of the system, it is a pre-trained system, not accessible at all to you. There are things you can change about the face, wear makeup in some strategic way or wear glasses with some certain patterns on them. People have algorithmically been able to come up with minimal changes to the appearance of a person's face in a manner that they are able to make even the best face recognition systems come up with the wrong conclusions. And those wrong conclusions can be engineered. If I want an existing face recognition system to come up with your face every time I am in front of it, I could engineer the system, or I could engineer algorithmically engineer patterns that I could put on my face or wear on my glasses or something in order to do that. And that engineering is done using 
GANs. Okay, perfect example. And it's being applied to speech recognition systems. There's work going on at Berkeley about it. They have websites about it, how they were able to fool the Google speech recognizer, bar University, cybersecurity. People have done that successfully just a few months ago. They can make Google speech recognizer come up with any hypothesis that they want, any given hypothesis in response to any other speech. Okay, great examples. So to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the consumer implications of this technology that we're going to see in the near future. And one example that I saw that's not exactly in the same domain that we're talking about, but is closely related is this Google duplex work where you, you probably have... Did you see this demo, this duplex demo? I did. The speech recognizer that was being demonstrated, something equivalent to Google Home? Well, it was basically this thing where you can ask Google to call restaurants and... Oh, yeah, I saw it. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. So that's not exactly related to what you're working on, but I thought it was a great example of how these incremental machine learning breakthroughs lead eventually to a really mind-blowing consumer application. So I just... Uh, do you have any ideas what over the next you know t- couple of years what are the consumer applications that we're going to see how is our world going to change so with google duplex there are multiple technologies that we are talking about one is distant speech recognition so there is this technology that has to do with the hardware with the microphone arrays used in the in the actual device that's capturing your speech right the the right kind of beamforming and be, it has to capture your speech very very with very high fidelity in order to be able to process it well, right? Then there's the back-end technology, the speech, Google Speech Recognizer and Apple's and Amazon's and all these companies who have very good groups working on speech recognition have, have come up with better and better and better performing speech recognizers over the past several years based on neural network technology, right? So that part is getting better. And the third aspect of it is robust speech recognition in many different ways. It used to be that conversational speech has many nuances that are difficult to model in terms of language, right? And the speech recognition systems of the past, and by past, I mean just a few years ago, (laughs) were very dependent on good language models to perform well. With neural networks and better engineering and all that, those hurdles have been um, slowly overcome. And so now we have recognizers that are able to recognize conversational style of speech much better, much, much better than they they could before. So put all of these together and also they're able to perform much better in the presence of noise. So put all of these uh, together, you have an app like, you have a demo like Google Duplex that works very well, um, or Alexa, which, which works in most noisy situations that I have seen. The Most of the applications that I think we are going to see in the next years have, will have to, we ha- will have an element of distant speech recognition, because that is the part that has eluded the community for a long time. And now it's it's at a point where it's it's almost a, going to be a solved problem very soon. So we may see, you know, you walk into a doctor's office, maybe, I don't know how cognizant you are about how difficult medical transcription used to be, but now there could be an assistant who could, uh, that could just 
listen to your speech and all the medical transcription part of it can be done by the assistant very accurately. You could have all kinds of form filling applications taken over by machines. So you could do bank transactions by through voice and you would not get the amounts wrong. <laughs> Let's not worry about the password and the security part of it, but you might be able to do accurate transactions, sensitive transactions. I don't think it's going to be ready for military use because of, again, keep bringing it back to adversarial systems, but there's other side of research that is very worrisome at this point where all of while all of these advances are going to lead to voice uh, systems that do a lot of complicated actions in response to voice, they're also likely to be fooled by more and more easily by these adversarial advances and algorithms. So there's going to, always going to be a playoff between the two, which is why I'm saying these systems would not, in my opinion, be not in the next five or six or 10 years, be ready for military use or use in situations where people's lives are at stake. Other than that, you know, I mean, if your money is at stake and you really care about it, yes, you can't use it even there. But in other cases, I think with the appropriate caution and the appropriate security measures in place, the systems could find their use in all the complicated tasks that humans perform by hand that they would like to perform by voice now. I can't think of any magical use for this, but the day-to-day use will, will certainly, we'll see more of it in the future. All right. Okay. Well, Rita, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it too. Wow.